Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. For Billy Joel, or at least his record label, 1997 seems to be a year of acknowledgement. It had been four years since his last album, and since then, Billy had been telling anyone who would listen that he was finished writing pop songs. Now, it seemed like Columbia Records was ready to accept that. On their terms, of course. 1997 saw the release of Billy Joel Greatest Hits Volume 3 and a companion VHS and DVD release of his music videos from the same era. Then came a box set style release of all three Greatest Hits editions later that year. Meanwhile, Billy hit the press circuit to promote Volume 3 and the cover songs he recorded for it. Along the way, we get hints and clues to projects he developed early the next decade. And, in lieu of touring, fans got his VH1 Behind the Music and Storytellers episodes. All this pointed the way for how Billy would handle the next phase of his career, and how his record label would make the most of its assets. Join us as we dive deep into Billy Joel in 1997. You know what's funny about 1997, at least for me, this was probably the beginning of my dip in listening to Billy. This was towards the end of high school. Just a scant few years later, I'd be working and have a kid. And I think we've talked about that at that point. I really wasn't uh, paying attention to what Billy was doing. And I, you know, reconnected with him later in my 20s. It's funny then to look back at 1997 and realize just how much was going on. I was long on the Billy train at this point, but... I had a feeling that there wasn't anything coming on the horizon as far as new material by this point, because it had been four years since River of Dreams. 1997, this would be my end of junior year to beginning of senior year of high school. While still listening to Billy all the time, probably by this point, I was listening to a lot more uh, heavy metal and 90s alternative and stuff like that than all Billy all the time as I was probably five years earlier. I had hit my 60s thing by now, so there was definitely a good deal of uh, Beatles and Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was junior high. Yeah. You know, Beatles were kind of always there. Uh, Jethro Tull, uh, ninth and 10th grade, and then all through high school. So I got into progressive rock more, and then, you know, I got into metal actually in like 99 in my senior year. And it's funny because, you know, it was a four-year gap between Stormfront and River of Dreams, but I guess it felt like a longer gap, and perhaps you know the answer to this, or we have it somewhere, but it seemed like Billy was much more ubiquitous in the 80s. Granted, he released more albums. He was always sort of in the news cycle, where even after Stormfront, he still popped up from time to time. Mm -hmm. But then after River of Dreams, I felt like after that cycle, he really disappeared. You know, even though we didn't have the benefit of hindsight knowing what we now know about what was going on, 
Mm-hmm. He did often allude to the fact that he was getting tired of it all. The long tours, the process of making an album, you know, just the constant grind of staying atop of the charts. It was visibly yeah. wearing on him by River of Dreams. And I think he had alluded, you know, during all the press junkets back then that he was really going to dial it back after this album. You capped out the 80s with a run of albums, a historical tour of Russia, all the tabloid press with Christy Brinkley, and then all the kind of ugly press with Frank Weber. And, you know, you wonder if Stormfront wouldn't have been the last one if he didn't want to take another lap after after making his money back or some of his money back, you know? Right. Um, you know, is there an alternate universe where Stormfront was the last one and I never saw him tour behind an album? Let's imagine that for just a second, because then you would have had one post-Lords album at that point. What's interesting about that time frame as well, though, is the bridge was starting to sound dated and the band kind of coming apart. Stormfront sounded very fresh and connected with a young audience, which he hadn't done in a long time. And then just four years later, you have River of Dreams, which is a noticeably mature Billy, which we hadn't seen on a record yet. It was said about uh, people like Phil Collins and Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood, people that came up in the 70s, that they sort of graciously glided into middle age in the 80s. So, you know, you had Phil Collins doing the pop thing, you know, Eric Clapton, an album like Journeyman, uh, Steve Winwood doing a song like Higher Love. Yep. You know, this is a far cry from Supper's Ready era Genesis or Cream or Traffic. Now that puts Billy uh, a few years behind them, you know, not really too many, but in terms of where, you know, he really broke, it was certainly later than Steve Winwood and Traffic and Eric Clapton and Cream. Yeah. He was a couple years behind Genesis, uh, certainly behind Genesis in terms of their uh, prog years. I would venture to say that Billy never made that super safe adult contemporary album, even though he was much more middle of the road all the time than those artists were in their in their earlier years. You know, and that leaves you with River of Dreams, where it was, you know, as we've said, um, a weird sounding album in retrospect, a weird sounding album that came out at a time when the music industry was still reacting to grunge and the emergence of you know, a lot of early 90s bands, a lot of those like post-grunge 90s bands, sort of folk rock 90s bands. It really didn't sound like any of that, nor did it sound like he was doing the, uh, you know, the, the dad shoes right. sort of album, you know, the Dockers and, and New Balance sneakers, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, Yacht Rock sort of uh, taking it easy, glossy production album either. Yeah. But by 1997, you know, with these covers, he, I, I guess he did. You know, I guess this was his... His really brief dip into that, yeah, <laughs> which you know he wasn't really that into it, and you know even as we'll see in his appearances here, he made no bones about that. You know he had been hinting at the fact that he was done releasing pop records uh, by this point, and and when Columbia came calling, said you know it's time for another greatest hits album here. As record companies do, they want to include some new material to help sell it. Uh, He agreed to go into the studio, but he wasn't about to churn out some new songs of his own. You know, for as much as the 1997 on paper was a victory lap, when you dig into what he was saying at that time and some things that were happening, you see that this set up, he actually set up a lot of things that he did in the years to come, uh, including some items that we've covered already. So with that said, why don't we get into the year here? We've got quite a few line items. We tend to put things in chronological order. So it's an easy way to lay out how the year unfolded. You know, from what we're seeing, the first half of the year 
was pretty quiet. And then leading up to the August release of Greatest Hits Volume 3, we start seeing some activity. We have a real interesting hodgepodge of appearances here. You know, we have the usual um, talk show circuits, you know, the usual promotional stuff. You got your David Letterman, Good Morning America, all those. But then you also have an honorary degree. You have a, a high-profile guest appearance. And then you also have some music-related appearances that aren't concerts. And they, they, these are things we'll see a little more often, a couple of them a little more often going forward, but one especially unique uh, appearance. All right, I think I've teased this enough times. Let's start on May 9th. <laughs> Which... Happens to be Billy's 48th birthday. Oh, let's do another key. Friend G. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, John William. Happy birthday to you. Public humiliation number one. <laughs> This is a fascinating one because we would learn later that Billy, Joel, and Elton John toured together in Australia in 1998. Now, on Billy's birthday, May 9th, here in 97, Billy and Elton both appear uh, and on, on an Australian talk show, what appears to be a joint rehearsal talking about touring together the following year. But, you know, it really begs the question, why are they rehearsing <laughs> <laughs> this early, right? That's what really surprises me because in looking at that, those dates for the Billy Elton tour of 98, the face-to-face -to -face tour of 98 began in March and went into June of 98. He did Europe, Asia, and Australia, New Zealand. You're looking at 10 months before the tour starts, they're rehearsing together. But the flip side of that, Billy's fall was going to get very busy, which we didn't know yet at the time. So perhaps this is why they started kind of kicking it around a little bit that early. And also Elton John had a tour going in 97 into 98 as well, too, for the Big Picture album. So perhaps it was also working around the uh, Elton John tour. Was that the first time Face to Face went to Australia? I believe so. Is it possible that Elton wasn't as big in Australia as Billy was. And so they had to pull out a couple extra big guns. You know, or it's even possible that this wasn't a Billy Joel Elton John rehearsal. Perhaps it was just an Elton John rehearsal that Billy came over by to do this interview. Right. I mean, it still begs the question, why in Australia? Well, the, you know, this was Australia and Europe um, and they did Europe in 95. So, yeah, I'm not sure why. Yeah. Going through the Elton John tour dates, and I'm just kind of spot checking. He doesn't go to Australia all the time, but there's a couple of years where uh, where he definitely did a handful of dates. You know, in particular, uh, I'm looking at just 1979. He had like the Down Under tour, 1979, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I guess he was over there. So all right, chalk this one up. Put another one on our list that we'll ask Billy the day we finally get him on here. Yeah, for real. And, and I'm sure he's gonna like remember minutia like that. You know? <laughs> So from there, we see something very different for Billy Joel. He receives an honorary degree from Hofstra University. The man who, just 15 years prior, reiterated what he told his high school teacher, I'm not going to Columbia University. I'm going to Columbia Records. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Joel, your music has brought great joy and pleasure to millions. You are truly one of our musical treasures. For your commitment to the arts 
I'm pleased to bestow upon you at this time the Doctor of Humane Letters degree honoris causa. I congratulate you and welcome you to the Hofstra family. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, this is going to my mom's house. Uh, I grew up about 15 minutes from here. Uh, right down the road, so this is uh, especially meaningful for me. First time I ever came to Hofstra, uh, I came to see a play in the early 60s. It was called The Mad Woman of Shio. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> But I was at the theater in Hofstra, and I was really knocked out uh, that this was a university on my home island of Long Island. And uh, so I'm proud to accept this uh, from Hofstra. Thank you. Um, also, uh, I'm not going to tell you what, you're, you know, what you should do, what to do, what not to do. You, you paid your dues. You're graduating. You know, I will just say one thing. Um, what the Beatles said, I, I think, still stands, stands true. They said, all you need is love. And, and I'd like to just add an addendum to that. I think all you need is to know what you love um, and to do what you love. Because if you don't do what you love, you're just wasting your time. So do what you love if you can. And uh, while I was sitting here, I, I scribbled down. I'd like to do a little call and response thing, so you've got to help me out here, okay? I said, hey, 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 yeah. I said, hey, 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 yeah. Hey, 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 yeah. Come on, everybody, take a trip with me. And this begun the season of Billy getting several honorary degrees. It's kind of comical in context about Billy. But the, the thing of it is, Billy has always been an education buff. He's always loved history. He's always had a big respect for teachers and things like that. But he just yeah. never happened to graduate back then. But the honorary degrees, though, are always kind of amusing to me. For how long had he been doing the master classes? Because he does a few this year. On and off for a while. He had done some in the early 80s, maybe even in the 70s. And there was the MTV one that was broadcast in 82. There's a couple mm-hmm. that are filmed on YouTube from like 86. He did quite a few over around the River of Dreams era. It's just been on and off for a while, I think. 96 actually was the, was the bigger year for the master classes. That makes sense because 96 didn't have any tours or any albums out to promote. Um, so that makes sense that that had quite a few more. 
you know, you wonder if he just got off tour and was like, I'm doing this instead. It's easier. And you know, more fun. You know, I, I love, I, I don't remember which one it was, but I love the one maybe he does it more of the ones where he talks about how when he was a kid, he wrote to the Beatles asking, how do they write these songs? And he gets back for an autograph photo, send $5. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so he always made a point of talking about everything, you know, really pulling back the curtain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that story too. So now we're getting into summer and we've got Garth Brooks doing a big show at Central Park on August 7th and Billy joins him and Garth's band to do a cover of You May Be Right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I'm not the biggest Garth Brooks fan and I could even do without the without the lines he took, but you know, it's, it's always exciting to see that big a crowd. So, you know, the excitement's there, even if you're watching it on YouTube, you, you can't help but feel that. Always makes me think too, you know, I wonder why they never did a Billy Joel Central Park show like this and like the Simon and Garfunkel one in the early 80s. Well, we held out and got the Madison Square Garden residency, so. That's true. <laughs> you know, he got Yankee Stadium. Maybe that was his Central Park. Sure, two nights at Yankee Stadium and then another couple of nights at Shea years later. His appearances like these, I, I can't remember offhand which year we mentioned this. I mean, maybe it was 88 where, you know, he was off, he was off the tour cycle and he was finding, you know, different things like this to do. Uh, that was a year he was on like Sesame street and stuff like that. You see where he sort of avoids having to go on tour. Instead, he does the storytellers. He does, uh, the master classes. He sits in with Garth Brooks, you know, that, that stuff's enough to keep his name in the paper, so to speak, without having to hit the road behind a release. He really didn't give that much of a damn about all things considered. I have a lot of conjecture going on this episode. I'm going to get myself in trouble <laughs> a year down the line. <laughs> well, it's some of it's hard to wrap your head around and kind of figure out what the motives were behind some of it. These years that don't have a, especially most of the year don't have a specific plan that's visible to us. It's you sometimes have to make up a narrative that makes sense based on what you can see. Yeah. A little through line here and there. Yeah. So the Garth Brooks Central Park show is August 7th, and now we're rolling right into Greatest Hits Volume 3 territory for the rest of the year. So the first item up on the Greatest Hits Volume 3 schedule 
is the release of the first single, which was To Make You Feel My Love, and that was released on August 13th. And then right after that, the day before the full CD comes out, he's on David Letterman. He performs To Make You Feel My Love, uh, starts with that before sitting down on the couch. Our next guest is uh, one of the most successful uh, singer songwriters in popular music, having sold over 90, 90 million albums. His brand new CD, Greatest Hits, Volume 3, will be in stores tomorrow. Here he is, Billy Joel. Billy! say something potentially controversial here okay i did not like uh liberty's performance on this no now if i remember correctly and you may be able to correct me on this there's either sequenced drums or sequenced drums and liberty on top of it on the record there are correct right liberty does many things well but playing like a drum loop is not one of them <laughs> right his idiosyncratic way of playing just does not serve this arrangement. And I got to be honest with you, he kind of dragged it down a little. I mean, I appreciate that he's there. You know, it's notable that in 97, you know, he's still bringing Lib out for these things. But for a New Orleans sort of style of playing, you know, you need a little bit more smoothness, a little more syncopation. And that's sort of not what he's known for. He really accents and punctuates a lot. And so when he's like, kind of beating the hell out of the snare drum on this it's a it's a technique that works you know fantastically on album after album after album and live show after live show after live show but yeah. not billy's mor bob dylan cover phase i noticed there's billy there liberty obviously like you were talking mark rivera singing backing vocals and i believe crystal is there we got tommy burns it looks like so it is a good chunk of the band but Overall, it just feels a little stiff. However, there was one special guest. Yes, there was. Felix Cavalieri from the from the Rascals slash the Young Rascals, which, you know, is a little bit of a come up for Billy in, in that way. You know, where we talked about the bridge where he got to work with Stevie, you know, where Ray Charles and Stevie. You laugh when I say Stevie Winwood by accident every time. Like, I think he's Stevie. Winwood. No, 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 no. I see you laughing at me. No, no, no. Stevie Winwood is fine. I thought you said something totally different. What do you think I said? I don't know, but it wasn't that. <laughs> no, Stevie Winwood totally makes sense. 
Because yeah, yeah. that's what he went by for the longest time. Okay, it was, right? I thought so. Little Stevie Winwood. No, yeah. wait, that's not quite right. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, you know, on the bridge, he got to work with Ray Charles and Steve Winwood, two of his... Uh, well, Ray Charles, certainly an idol. Steve Winwood, almost a contemporary, but Liberty, of course, and, and the rest of the band also listened to Traffic. So, you know, having Felix from the Rascals come up, you know, it's kind of a nod in that direction, you know, of, of really capstoning, you know, a big phase of your career by having somebody that you grew up listening to, also from Long Island, I believe, come and play. Yeah, they were you. all a part of the scene together. Uh, yeah, that's The right. New York Workshop, you know, Liberty's old band, Topper, The Hassles, the Young Rascals all ran in the same circles. And, you know, it's always fun to see Billy relaxed and in great form, you know, on this and uh, on another talk show appearance later on this year. He's just really in great form. Him and Letterman are, are a great duo. They are. Every time that he's been on Letterman's show, it's always, you can tell the people that Letterman likes. Letterman can be uh, an asshole to you if he doesn't <laughs> like you. You can tell he definitely likes Billy and they get along really well. I really have to wonder if they knew that they were going to end the segment with, well, we know you have the cake and then, yeah. you know, oh, we'll be right back. Like, I wonder if they knew that was going to happen or if like a producer was like, that's it. That's the spot right there. Like, that's it. That's when we go to commercial. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll back that up for anyone that doesn't get a chance to watch the clip, uh, because especially because this is a hint to something that we see in full form in 2003. And 2003 yes. was really a wilderness year, just five years later. You know, if this is the, the capstone to his uh, recording career, certainly this is our first hint of what he's thinking about in the future. He's talking about, he's talking about his boats. He's talking about the, uh, what was it called? The Long Island? The Shelter Island Runabout. The Shelter Island Runabout. Thank you. Where he owned the company that, that made the parts and they only put together X amount each year. You know, it's, it's just funny uh, the way he talks about... Um, uh, the way it looks like it's going to be slower and then, you, you know, you pass people in it and <laughs> the other captains are looking at you, surprised that you're able to do it. <laughs> Retiring uh, musicians and, you know, sell their discographies. Between the discographies and the boats, you know, you had these guys opening vineyards. <laughs> that seemed to be the right. thing. Billy Trudeau's yeah. roots is, is building boats, you know, and later motorcycles. Yeah. Probably the first hint I think we've heard of that yet, right? I think so, too. I mean, his love for boats was always there. But yeah. I think this is the first time you really hear uh, him designing and building boats. The fact that he's on Letterman essentially to promote Greatest Hits Volume 3, but they spend a good couple of minutes talking about boats, Billy's boats. That's a good interview, though, where the interviewer can steer a topic to something that a guest is excited about then you're going to get some good stuff. You can see when Billy starts talking about the boats, how passionate he is about it. I watched these all in a row, so I can't remember if it was this one, but at least on one or two of these, he he just out and says, the, you know, well, I haven't put out anything in a little while and the record label needed something, so we did some covers. You know, he's, he's yep. not shy about that at all. He didn't, he didn't try to put on anything about like, well, this is the time to, you know, revisit my youth and, and reinterpret, blah, 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 blah. No, it was the record company wanted yep. me to do it, you know. But he speaks yep. very highly of to make you feel my love, at least. Oh, the yeah. hair stood up on the back of my head, uh, back of my neck and this and that. Now, obviously, to make you feel my love is a Bob Dylan song. And Billy released it as a single just before Bob Dylan. So Bob Dylan released it as a single September 30th of 97 under the original title, which is Make You Feel My Love. It was out. Um, What was the album that it was on? Time Out of Mind, mm -hmm. which was September 30th. So, yeah, September 30th was the release date of the song. 
Now, Billy's version of To Make You Feel My Love was released as a single, as we said, August 13th. So by about six weeks, Billy beat Bob Dylan to market with his own song. But interestingly, he talks around it a little where they said, we have this Bob Dylan song. It's not on an album. And he sort of insinuates that it's some forgotten B-side or a castaway. But, you know, for those to come out that closely, like it was on the album. It was on Time Out of Mind. Billy is on Columbia Records. Mm -hmm. Dylan is on Columbia Records. Arguably their most high profile artist. They're hearing each other's material if they want to. He probably heard an advanced copy or a work in progress mix of the song or the album and said he loved the tune and decided to record it. I wonder too if they were pitching it to him as well because they knew he was yeah. just going to do covers at that point. It's an interesting symbiotic relationship because Time Out of Mind was something of a comeback album for Dylan. He'd had a run of so-so records before that and he was really yeah. risking being thrown out of the public eye. Maybe not completely, but you know, he was definitely losing a lot of relevance. Time Out of Mind was a, was a record that sort of righted the ship for him for, you know, the next decade or so at least. So it's interesting that, you know, he or whomever else allows Billy to lead with it. Billy's probably a bigger name, a little more relevant at that point, even though it's it's not the same sort of cred. You know, it gets the name buzzing out there again. You know, it gets gets people thinking about Dylan again in in advance of this release. You know, was the Dylan album originally going to come out first and you know, Billy, they just happened to get ready for us. I'm curious what the what the timeline was if it was it, it just happened to be that Billy's came out first, but it's it's so funny that it was so close together. I mean, I never remember reading anything about the Dylan album being labored or delayed or anything like that. I think this was well planned out. Yeah, Billy's cover kinda almost provided a lift to the Dylan album a little bit, a little in advanced play of like oh, you know, this Bob Dylan song, and then they're starting to promote the new Bob Dylan record, which features Make You Feel My Love. Bob's not going to go out there and do the talk shows and the <laughs> press interviews. You know, that's not what he does. I mean, he'll do the occasional thing, but he's not going to go on a press blitz for a new album like you know Billy Joel does. The closest we'll get to him doing that is uh, Billy's Bob Dylan impression on Letterman. <laughs> right, yeah. So, hey, Columbia's like, great, we can send Billy out promote this new greatest hits record and get some um, visibility for Bob Dylan up again before the new record comes out next month. And my last, win, my win. last, yeah, win, win. And my last point about the, the Letterman thing, what a great rapport they had was, you know, Billy's doing his Dylan impression by now we know Billy does impressions. <laughs> Letterman breaks in and goes, you know, that's what Dylan would sound like if he was a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And that's August 18th, August 19th. The album drops. Look at the cover. For Greatest Hits, Volume 3. Yep. And look at the cover for Time Out of Mind. Look at the fonts and the and the typeface. Blown it up. Definitely a different font. Yeah, but I mean, just it's got that sort of that blockiness and that, that sort of off-kilter, yeah. what would you call that? Alignment? Yeah, it's not like perfectly aligned. The words are kind of staggered about. Sort of almost the same color palette, you know, that, that sort of... Uh, sepia. Uh, yeah, sepia-ish, orange-ish, brownish uh, thing going on there. They they complement each other in that yeah. way, certainly. Yeah, Billy's yeah. is certainly more slick, uh, where Bob's is a little more raw. Which is about right for the two of them. Exactly. And and it's funny that, that they take the same song in two different directions in that sense. And obviously this song, most people these days know it as an Adele song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> she yeah. had such a big hit with it as well. So 
Yeah, you know, sometimes you get these songs and then that's it, man. They're going to be standards. So here we are back again, August 19th. Greatest Hits Volume 3 is out. And what's interesting is there's a one album overlap between Greatest Hits Volume 2 and 3, and that is An Innocent Man. Because you had a couple songs that were still doing well when Greatest Hits 1 and 2 were being compiled. So that's where this one starts. We've got 17 songs on the album, and we've got Keeping the Faith, An Innocent Man, Three from the Bridge, A Matter of Trust, Baby Grand, This is the Time, several from Stormfront, Leningrad, We Didn't Start the Fire, I Go to Extremes, and So It Goes, The Downeaster Alexa, and Shameless. That's six songs from one album. And then we've got the All About Soul single remix from River of Dreams. We've also got Lullaby and the River of Dreams. And then we've got rounding out the three cover songs to make you feel my love hey girl and light is the breeze yeah having six songs off stormfront when you when you got what, six out of ten songs that almost reimagines that album now between volume two and volume three we have five of the ten songs from innocent man but i think innocent man was a much more even album uh, than stormfront was the high yeah. points weren't too much higher than than the average songs on there uh, but this reminds me of the letter we got a couple months ago from Jason Skidmore, uh, where he deposited the idea that Stormfront could have been a great EP. He would have made it, uh, that's not her style, I go to extreme, Stormfront, shameless. Better collection would have been the Never Write Fire, wrap up side one with Stormfront, take off side two. So that's not too far from uh, from Jason's idea there. You know, although I think, I, I, I at least, and I think you agreed, if I remember correctly, that we would have kept State of Grace. Yeah. Although, you know what? That's just such a strong song. Yeah. yeah. But I sort of take that back because now that I'm looking at it, it's three songs from each side. So not quite. (laughs) You know, it's Leningrad and so it goes pretty much the whole first side except for That's Not Her Style. Yes. And then Leningrad and it's so it goes from the second side. Yes. Not that anybody's counting, but I would have, if you put State of Grace on there instead of We Didn't Start the Fire, that would have made a great EP for me for Stormfront. And looking too, they did omit one single it's an interesting choice because they put Leningrad on here, right? Mm-hmm. But they did, that did not chart in the U.S., but they did leave off That's Not Her Style, which peaked at number 77 on the charts. So that's an interesting choice, the fact that they left out the bigger song in the U.S. here. And this is something I think I said way back when we started, when we did Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2. You know, there's that subtle difference between Greatest Hits and Best Of. Greatest Hits are usually your best charting songs where a best of may be more of a, a sample of like what the artist did best, regardless of, you know, how well it did on the charts kind of thing. Yeah, so this should have been a, um, more of a numbers game than that. So yeah, that's not her style. They have made it more than Leningrad, but I guess there's a little bit of curation here. I mean, wasn't no man's land a single or at least he, he pushed it a bit. I mean, that was the tour opener. He did that on Letterman. Yeah, it was a single, it didn't chart on the Hot 100. It charted mm-hmm. on the U.S. mainstream rock charts at number 18, but it didn't crack the top 100. Neither did Shameless. But then again, you know, Garth Brooks did a lot with that song, so. Right. Yeah. This is a little bit of something borrowed, something new here. <laughs> you put Shameless mm-hmm. and these covers together, particularly the Dylan one, or one well, back scratching and, the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And in looking, they also left off Modern Woman, which was a top 10. Did Matter of Trust chart? Matter of Trust did chart. That also hit number 10. Okay. Matter of Trust and Modern Woman were the two biggest songs from the album. I mean, Modern Woman is probably easily his most 
dated sounding song, at least his most dated sounding single. Right. Yeah, this is the times probably right behind it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, you had Leave a Tender Moment Alone, which charted at number 27 from the Innocent Man record. So that one did pretty well too, but that, that didn't make it. A few weeks later, he kicks off Rosie O'Donnell's first show. Yep. Which is, you know, just a fun piece of trivia. Uh, he kicked off David Letterman's first show on NBC uh, when he came yeah. on to promote River of Dreams, and now he's uh, kicking off Rosie O'Donnell's show. A lot of you may not remember, depending on your age, for a hot minute, Rosie O'Donnell's show was hugely popular. Well, would I be correct in saying that's what kicked off the spunky female-led daytime talk show? I would say so. Yeah, that was the precursor to Ellen. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It was fun. It was light, upbeat, funny. And just a lot of like games and music and yeah, absolutely. The koosh balls, right? She used to throw the koosh balls at people. That was that. That's was a thing. right. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. And, and you know what was funny about that? So they had like the Rosie magazine, just like they had the Oprah magazine. But you know, she was like a body comic in that sense, sort of like God rest his smutty soul of one Mister Bob Saget, yeah, who uh, had just passed away at the time of this recording. They ha- I remember reading this in, this in the early 2000s that the show ends, they got, but the, the Rosie O'Donnell train has left the station. The magazine's out, the branding's out, and she right. goes back to being bawdy, and the magazine people are pissed off. They're like, no, we invested yeah. so much in your wholesome image. She's like, nah, I'm a bitch. I'm going to be a bitch. It's something, something to that effect. I really wish I right, could find right. that. <laughs> yeah, she was she was really derided for being that boisterous, but I think it was pretty funny. I, you know, she had a good uh, she had a good rapport with him. He he felt like he was sort of wading into it just a little, and then he was kind of fine with it. You know, especially coming off Letterman because Letterman they've they've been going back and forth for years. You know, yeah. And I think yeah. Rosie's a bigger personality, at, and at a time, especially when Billy was being a little more low key. Had this interview had happened in the eighties when Billy was sort of riding his highest in the media. And, you know, yeah, yeah. a little proud of himself with good reason. Might have matched that energy a little quicker, but he sort of wades in here. But Rosie's got some funny stories about, like, somebody calling her when she lived on Long Island and said, Billy Joel's at this bar. And she goes and she missed him, you know, because she leaves with, you know, I used to stalk you, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty and, uh, funny. So <laughs> I was thinking about this, too. <laughs> well, okay. So there were two hints at things that happened later here. They're both subtle. Okay. I'll say the I'll say the, 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 the naughty one first, so to speak. Yeah. You know, so what is it two thousand two, two thousand three, he keeps crashing his car on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Right. So she's like, So so Rosie O'Donnell starts starts naming all these bars. Do you ever been here? Do you ever been there? He's been Yeah, I've been to these bars. I've been around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but did you catch the other um seed that's sown on this one? No, I didn't. What what what'd you see? He mentions going to Austria to see his brother, who's a classical pianist. Oh, right. So who does he meet at that point? Young Kiju. That, that's that's got to be, because that completely makes sense for the timeline. Right. This would have been four years before Fantasies and Delusions. I bet you that's it. Here and in other places, he starts talking about, I'm done writing pop music. I've been writing classical music. Uh, oh, that's right. That's the, I love, I love, he says that. Yeah. Cause he says that to Letterman. I'm, I've been writing classical music and, and Letterman says, why? Cause you've made enough money already. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So he mentions he's writing it. And then, you know, when you, you have to go backwards to put the pieces together, but you know, this is when he, he mentions, he, you know, he references the, the time he meets young Kiju, which kind of sort of the final piece to fantasies and delusions, which comes out a few years later. So with the album, 
this in typical Billy fashion, this did ultimately go platinum. It was certified gold and platinum on the same day, according to the RIAA. And that was March 31st, 1998. This seems to be one of those years where he avoided touring, but also found ways to stay in the in the paper, so to speak. So he does uh, VH1 Storytellers. He records mm-hmm. it on September 11th, and it airs on November 9th. I don't want to go too much into this one right now, uh, just because it deserves its own episode. It's on YouTube, and the, the outtakes are also on YouTube, and I always enjoy the outtakes. You know, you watch that afterwards, and you see all that behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, the more Jack and I started going back and forth about storytellers, it became pretty clear that it's such a f- unique hybrid of full band, jam, slick performance, and joking. So it's just such a great couple hours that we definitely need to dig into it for its own episode because there's a lot of really good stuff in this. October 3rd and 4th, he does a pair of master classes in uh, Tanglewood, Massachusetts. That's an episode we have to do. The master classes. Yeah. After the master classes here, we have October 13th when the Greatest Hits Volume 3, the video, was released, which is essentially the companion to the CD that has the music videos for all of these songs on it. Uh, it was put out on VHS and DVD. Yeah, well, you know, it was a shame because I didn't have MTV and I had all the other videos on, on VHS. So I'm, I'm just... So so much less intimately familiar with the River of Dreams videos that by the time I saw them, there was just no magic for them in me. The River of Dreams video was good. The other ones were just pretty much just performance. I mean, the Shades of Grey was a different, uh, was a, was a live take, right? So on the Greatest Hits Volume 3, the videos we've got Keeping the Faith, A Matter of Trust, Baby Grand, Leningrad, We Didn't Start the Fire, I Go to Extremes, and So It Goes, Down Easter Alexa, Shameless Live, All About Soul Live, No Man's Land, Lullaby, Goodnight My Angel, The River of Dreams, To Make You Feel My Love, and Hey Girl. And it's funny that there's a little bit of overlap between that and the Eye of the Storm video release. And even the video album, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the Innocent Man stuff was on uh, volume two. So is uh, Baby Grand and A Matter of Trust. And A Matter of Trust. Yeah, 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 the bridge. And yeah, that's right, because that's why uh, Eye of the Storm was its own thing, I guess. Yeah, you can even tell by the time, you know, the River Dreams videos came out, he's he's really done with, well, everybody was getting, everybody was a little done with MTV, getting there anyway. By about 1997 is really when it started the decline, probably by the end of the 90s, it was, that was about it. Yeah, I think they, they capped the golden age at 92. It was, there's a yeah. book out, actually, that does that, caps it at 92. So a couple things about this. One, I had never seen the no man's land video before or after i remember this was a very puzzling thing because i don't even remember it getting any airplay when it came out unlike the video releases before with the music videos this one has billy uh has interstitials of billy talking about each song and video prior to that video in one spot i think it's before i go to extremes he talks about the writing of that song in particular and talks about how Basically, Billy came into the studio with this groove and wanted Billy to write something around it. What was kind of interesting, and I didn't know it at the time, but they had footage of Liberty in the studio from the bridge documentary, Building the Bridge. And it's actually the segment of him playing when they had Steve Winwood in the studio with them. It was kind of funny, but you only see Liberty. Basically, Billy on him by himself talking through all these songs 
uh, as opposed to just back-to-back-to-back video. Which is a nice inclusion, uh, you know, especially because, as we just mentioned, there is some overlap between other releases. But then again, you know, we're sort of at the height of, really at the height of, of consumerism for material music releases. You know, it's just a few years after that, the bottom's going to fall out, <laughs> you know. You know, this is when, even when we were talking to, you know, Edward O'Dowd, uh, a Billy Joel record was an excuse to print money. <laughs> Definitely a time when, like you said, if it had the name Billy Joel on it, it was going to do well. So you wanted to take advantage of any opportunity as a company to put out what you could to maximize on it. So certainly the video companion made sense since obviously the hits are usually what have music videos. This one also actually did go gold. Now, music videos had a much lower threshold for going gold. Uh, it was certified 0.05 million. So what is that even? <laughs> 0.5 million, that's about 50,000 units, which isn't a whole lot, really, when you think about it. You, you had to be a real fan to buy the, the music videos. Oh, certainly. And it took about yeah. six months for that to even happen. So that was uh, March 3rd, 98. It, it was certified gold. But yeah, absolutely. The, the casual fan you know, wasn't going out and buying this one. And, you know, don't forget too, you could rent them a lot of times in video stores. So, you know, except, except for freaking weirdos like us that watched them incessantly. Or I remember renting the Springsteen videos, you know, like twice, you know, and I watched them. I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm fine. I've seen them. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. I would rent the live from Long Island one quite a bit. And probably the video albums, I think were the other ones. Usually either that or a Nintendo game I was renting on a Friday night. So speaking of, you know, at that point, you know, this being sort of the height of you put it out, they're going to buy it. And that was Billy Joel and just about anybody. This was like, you know, CDs were about to reach their peak in price. This is the time you had like Metallica notwithstanding overlong CDs, you know, like just albums that were too long. And, and you're getting, yeah. to, you're getting, to, you're getting into that and you're also getting into um, you know, the albums that had only two good songs on them and suddenly you're paying 20 bucks for the whole freaking CD because right. 45s weren't a thing anymore. So October 13th, Greatest Hits Volume 3 comes out. October 14th, we get the Complete Hits Collection 1973 to 1997. I, I'm not a collector, so I, you know, even if I was into it, I probably wouldn't have bothered. You know, I would have been like, I got one, two, and three now. I'm fine. Of course I have it, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's certainly different packaging, and they, they've got the lyrics, album covers, some like handwritten lyrics embossed underneath it, which, yeah. um, you know, printed underneath it, which looked kind of cool. They, you know, they did a decent job with the packaging. Disc four or cassette four, because it was out on cassette two. That's the big head scratcher for me, because you had Greatest Hits Volume one and two, which was disc one and two. Disc three was Greatest Hits Volume three. So all that was to be expected. They had the album versions of the radio edit songs this time around though they weren't the radio edits you know talking about billy doing the master class circuit a lot lately uh disc four is an evening of questions and answers and a little music which was what they would bill his master classes as right so we had a couple things on here billy talks about music concepts for about 10 minutes and then you've got a live version of scenes from an italian restaurant and then he talks about the Beatles, and then there's a live version of Hard Day's Night. And then he sets up Vienna, and then there's a live version of Vienna. And then mm-hmm. History Through Music, followed by a live version of We Didn't Start the Fire. And then you have uh, a segment talking about where he comes up with music or his music so- music source. This is followed by probably the most interesting one, 
the River of Dreams original studio recording, which was, this is the one that has a segment of what would become Lullaby in the middle of it. Right. So now you have the River of Dreams coming in at five minutes and 20 seconds as a result. But after that, you've got um, him talking about the Piano Man origin, followed by a live version of Piano Man. Yeah, so, you know, at least a little something different, but I'm skeptical of these. I mean, the vinyl set was pretty cool. Because yeah. it was all first time on record, but you know these these kind of get start to get silly. Artists like Billy hits like several compilations, you know, over and over again. Greatest hits series. You've got the essential series. You've got the hits. You've got love songs. So there's so many different ways they ways they've packaged songs over the years. Certainly, this song actually did go double platinum as of October first, two thousand eighteen. Hmm. However. I'm not mistaken, since this is a four-disc set, each sale of the set counts as four units. So, double platinum would be half a million. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Still a pretty good showing, especially when it was released literally right on the heels of of Volume 3 anyway. You know, just as with the videos you're dealing with, you're only going to get, like, diehard fans buying them. But I I wonder if this sold better in the years to come as new people got into Billy, but before CDs completely fell by the wayside. And it was a one shot to get them all. Exactly. That's what I you suspect. Know. Right. This is more of a long-term. Yeah. Thing. Long-term thinking. Yeah. Great about that. In that sense is do it, do it now. Well, 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 CDs are still money-making machines. Right. You know, uh, so it's there and it's just ready to be reprinted as needed. This um, was actually also just on the heels, which we'll get into when we go through 1998 when his entire catalog was re-released for the first time. Back in 93, 94, there were hints that he didn't want to do the pop star thing anymore. But man, everybody is just, you know, the record company is just resigned to it now. They put out the Complete Hits collection. They do the reissues, like, right on the heels of that. Like, you know, he must have been like, it ain't happening, guys. The vibe I get, it was like, hey, I'm not doing another record, but you've got what I've recorded. Do what you want. Right. I'm not going to stop it, or but I'm also not going to support it. <laughs> yeah, man. What was Napster? Napster was 99, 2000. 2000. Yeah. Speaking yeah, of Metallica. Wonder, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> You wonder if the industry saw the writing on the wall just a little beforehand. I wonder when things started to taper. I mean, obviously, 2000, 2001 is when it really exploded. And like mm-hmm. Napster ultimately got shut down. But I feel like it was starting to creep up in the late late nineties. Do you remember going into chat rooms and you could and you would get like random songs? Yeah. Forget what the exact process was, but it was like you would go into certain chat rooms and people, if they had it, oh, they would tell you what they had and you could ask for it and like, but they couldn't really email it to you. Well, and that's the thing too, because it's like internet connections were so slow too. So oh, like yeah, it would take definitely... a long time to get it. Like oh, it'd take like hours. Yeah. But if I remember correctly. I rarely ever got full albums. You used to get like a song here and a song there sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But that's right. Cause I graduated high school in 99 and I, and by then we had a few kids that were like, that would give you like a CD with like, you know, five hours of MP3s or an, you know, an amazing amount of MP3s on yeah. a disc. So I think they knew that their time was running short. Yeah. And maybe that's also in part why you saw things like greatest is volume three complete hits collection. Yeah. Let's remaster the whole freaking thing. Like right now. You know, right, right this second. Let's get it while we can. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to Hey Girl being released as a single in October. Yeah, I wasn't able to land on a specific date for it, but from everything I'm finding, it was somewhere in October. 
you know, it really didn't do much of anything. Yeah, that must have been a little bit of a, not a passion project for him, but like, what an odd song to do. That's, you know, as written yeah. by Carol King, recorded by Freddie Scott, and then recorded later by Carol King again. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's on Good Morning America. It's funny, like, he's, he sort of slides down the down the, the scale of, of, of hip, you know, kind of talk shows to be on. Goes from, yep. you know, the ultimate hipster, David Letterman, so to well, hipster, so to speak. Down to Rosie O'Donnell, and now he's just on Good Morning America again, you know. And and what's funny is, I think in the Good Morning America one, he really doesn't mince words about just being done and 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 almost not caring about Greatest Hits Volume Three. He really doesn't talk around anything here. Yeah, I'm done. I'm just writing classical music. Well, they wanted to put it out, and I wasn't going to make anything new, so we did some covers. When you sat down to do a Greatest Hits album, the third one, did you say, "Do I have enough songs"? Or were you more in the line of, I have a lot of stuff? This was actually suggested by Columbia Records. Um, maybe because I hadn't put out an album since 93. Mm -hmm. They came to me and said, you know, you've got enough material for a third Greatest Hits album. And I said, no, it's impossible. And then I realized the last Greatest Hits, which was a double Greatest Hits album, came out in 85. Mm -hmm. Here we are in 97. So 12 years is a while, you know, in the music business. Essentially, Greatest Hits... You know, you can also call it kind of a used cars situation, you know, yeah. which is okay. They're good used cars. You know, this would be the last press tour Billy did upon a major release. Eh, well, he did a little bit around the Millennium concert, mm -hmm. but um, this was certainly the last big push around a, a new release of his that was yeah. saw him all over the place. And he mentions here, too, that just the exhaustion that comes with touring, uh, you know, which is sort of telling. In looking back through Billy's touring history, it really didn't ramp up too crazy until the Bridge tour. Um, the Nylon Curtain tour was only like 25 shows. Glass Houses was mm. around there, you know. So like those early, you know, late 70s, early 80s tours were not that huge. But then you had the Bridge and especially Stormfront and River of Dreams tours. Those, those are the right. ones that are fresh to mind. Those yeah. were juggernauts where it was like a few hundred shows. And, you know, he's dealing with the Frank Weber stuff, losing all the money, the divorce to Christie. So he's got so many things that are physically and emotionally pulling at him. I mean, I can totally see him wanting to just stop being like, I'm tired. This is all just too much now. So with that in mind, he, uh, he rounds out the year with uh, a news feature on E for uh, Greatest Hits Volume 3. And uh, an appearance on CBS this morning, along with another masterclass in London. And it's it's a little, you know, bit of the same. And that that's what you start to notice, you know, when you watch a lot of these uh, segments in succession is that it's like a lot of the same talking points. I'm not writing pop songs, so I did these covers. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's what a lot of like pretty much a lot of these greatest hits appearances are are focused on but you know he does seem in decent spirits overall so he's not you know quite to the point of packing it in um you could certainly tell that he's not done done like you know it's it's yeah. not like 2003 where it was like oh he's gonna even stop performing maybe yeah he um, might hang it up for real you didn't get that impression you could definitely tell that at that point he was done with pop recording and writing still definitely could tell that he was going to be performing for a while. Another thing that came out near the end of the year, the Billy Joel Behind the Music on VH1, which aired on November 9th, that was a 
hugely popular series for a few years, and Billy's was one of the most popular ones. That was an interesting take on his career, and it was obviously piggybacked with greatest hits and the storytellers, which all came out around the same time. It's almost funny that it was that popular because Behind the Music was at least later derided for for being very formulaic and very salacious too. But it all came crashing down when we come right. back. You know, that, that yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> right. It definitely had its formula. And with Billy, it was the, you know, there was the, I think the depression and suicide early on. And there was the Frank Weber stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, Liberty DeVito is actually featured pretty heavily in it. He talks quite a bit about, um, you know, the story of going into the safety deposit boxes with Billy and seeing all these IOUs and all this money was gone. And if I'm not mistaken, I'll have to go back and ask him next time we talk. I'm pretty sure that was his living room in Florida because huh. I recognized it like the where he's doing the interview. Um, yeah. I'll have to go back and look at that now. When you walked in to the right in his living room, they had a baby grand or a grand. I forget which I'm pretty sure that was all done right there in his living room. That'd be nice to put a, a spot to some of the stories we have. Well, we, you yeah. have, and now we have, uh, uh, they've been shared. And so that wraps up 1997. Um, you know, the more we talked about it, the more it's not only end of the era for Billy, but it's the beginning of the end for the record industry as we knew it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be a few short years before everything, you know, in in the rec- recording industry and, you know, really the country was drastically different. You know, we didn't shop for music the same way. We didn't, I guess, get hung up on, on the same things in the same way for a long time. When you look back at it, when you put the dots together, you really see how much the record company was okay with putting a bow on the end of uh, Billy's recording career, at least as a pop star. They put everything in neat and tidy packages. They didn't, I don't know if they could have forced him to tour, but, you know, he didn't tour. But, you know, clearly the, the management and PR team put together a string of appearances and alternatives to, to conventional live concerts. Yeah, certainly. And he would go on to tour pretty aggressively in 1998 with Elton John and then also on his own. And this is funny, you know, the age of the internet too. I believe this is also, it was also the first year he had like put a poll where you could vote on songs to get into the set list. So that uh, brings us to you. What do you remember of 1997? Do you Were you excited that Greatest Hits Volume 3 was coming out? Did you go also go out and buy Greatest Hits, the videos? Did you then go out again the next day and buy the Great Complete Hits collection? Or did you at least, uh, you know, save some gas and buy the buy both or all three of those items on the same day if you knew they were coming out? What did you think of the covers? What did you think of his appearances at the time? Did you get the feeling that this was official, he was not going to put out any more new music? Or were you still holding out hope at this point that something would happen? And are you still holding out hope now that it's been 25 years since then? Well, if we, as we've seen on the retold page, still people still ask. <laughs> I think uh, Billy's doing exactly what he wants to do. Yeah. Hit us up. You know where to find us. And, uh, you know, I know everybody was uh, busy by the end of the year last year. But, uh, you know, we miss getting those emails. Um, we promise we'll get better about responding to them all again. Uh, I know we dropped off a little, but, uh, you know, we, we definitely miss hearing from you guys. Even if we didn't read them on the on the podcast or respond to them, we definitely read every single one. It, it's really great getting other people's perspectives because, you know, it, it tends to also inform what we do next. You know, we're, we're thinking in, in more terms than just our own. As people chime in and, and tell us how they're, you know, what their opinions are of different shows and albums and where they agree with us or disagree, 
you know, not that we've been to it, but you know, it certainly makes us a more well-informed podcast when we know what you guys are thinking as well. We certainly take that into account as we structure the shows and structure our calendar. We've got this Google sheet that this spreadsheet that we've, we've had since the beginning where we'll plan out for eight months and then it's a game of Tetris. Things move around, shift around, or something will come up that we totally didn't expect or we'll land an interview we didn't, we didn't even think was going to be on our radar. So things are always moving around. Nothing's ever set in stone with us. And uh, as your comments and emails come in, it always guides us as to what we're going to do next. So hit us up. You know where to find us, even if we don't, because I had to pause and, and look up our email address again. It is glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on the socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. Yeah. The and we've got so much. We've got a few things in the hopper uh, that we're super excited about. So we planned this out for longevity. And, you know, here we are two years in and there's still a lot of cool stuff to talk about and uncover. So we're so thrilled to have you guys along for the ride and uh, can't wait to see where it all goes. And we'll see you next time. See you soon, everyone. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.